Amen. Well, this morning we return to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, and our plan is to cover the first seven chapters or so in less than 52 days. Now, Nehemiah as a book is uh, longer than seven chapters, but we are focusing our attention on the great project of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem that's described in uh, the book of Nehemiah. So as a quick refresher for you, uh, so you probably don't keep up with the history just like I don't, so it's nice to hear this so we kind of understand the context. Quick refresher is this, in 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire takes the forces up to the gates of Jerusalem. Uh, They overcome the city. They uh, destroy the walls, ultimately destroy the walls, destroy the temple, and they take the people of God, the remnant there in Judah, uh, into exile, uh, 800 miles into Babylon. And it's there that they live under a foreign king until the Medo-Persian Empire overpowers the Babylonians. And so now you have the Persians, the uh, Medes, um, uh, overcome the Babylonians, and now they lord over the people of God. But under Medo-Persian rule, uh, there is a new rule under King Cyrus that allows people to return to their ancient lands. And so um, uh, the first wave of Jews to return go under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And in 510 or 515 BC, they rebuild the temple. About 50 years later, um, Ezra, who has another book in the Bible, uh, there with Nehemiah, he leads a group uh, to Jerusalem, the second wave to return, and uh, we know that they begin to try to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Um, but there's a lot of local opposition, and so they put pressure on King Artaxerxes of that Medo-Persian empire, and he puts a stop to it. And he prevents them from rebuilding the walls. Uh, so just kind of a heartbreaking moment there for the people of God. And in the opening verses of the book of Nehemiah, um, Nehemiah's brother and some companions return from Jerusalem and they report on what has happened there, that the walls are still in ruins. What we imagine happened is that probably after King Artaxerxes said, don't rebuild the wall, some rebels probably would continue to do that. And the local opposition would come and tear down what they did and then evidently burned the gates that they had tried to uh, uh, install. And so that's what they report to Nehemiah. The walls are down, the gates have been burned, God's people in Jerusalem are exposed, and God's glory is in the mud. And that's really what gets Nehemiah's attention. What we know is that Nehemiah is the one who leads the effort to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And in chapter 6, it says that after 52 days, he completed the project of rebuilding the walls. So that's the motivation, the illustration that we're following in preaching this text in uh, under 52 days. Now, last Sunday, I invited you uh, to join with me in a time of prayer because Nehemiah modeled a life of prayer. Uh, you read all throughout the scriptures, and he prayed, or you'll just read the verses of, uh, that describe his prayer. Uh, nine, sometimes, uh, maybe 12 times in the book, it talks about Nehemiah's prayer. So we're going to follow his example and pray for God to work in our own day, uh, to work in our own hearts, to work in our own church, and in our own land. And um, I don't think I have to convince you that we're desperate for it. I don't think I have to convince you that we live in a trying time right now. Now, there may not be physical walls down, but there are spiritual walls down all around us. Um, The people of God have taken a low view of God. Uh, We approach God um, casually rather than with reverence. Um, He's often an afterthought in our mind rather than the preeminent God that's there at the forefront of every action and attitude and word um, that we say. 
We give him our leftovers rather than our first fruits. We sing his praises, but our hearts are far from him. We have a low view of God in our day. The people of God have a low view of holiness. Uh, We take God's commandments as outdated uh, or maybe suggestions for when it's convenient. So we don't honor God with our actions. We make excuses for our sin. And then I think in the church we collude together so that one another can can continue to walk in sin rather than lovingly confront one another with the truth. We have a low view of holiness in our day. I believe we also have a low view of Christian responsibility. We don't know that it's, or we don't live as if it's up to us to carry out God's purposes in our life as are are described in Scripture. We live for ourselves, our own appetites, our own desires, our own goals and passions, rather than for the King who called us, who saved us. We fail to remember that God has commissioned us. He has given us a mission in this world. So we have a low view of God. We have a low view of holiness. We have a low view of Christian uh, personal responsibility. We are a people in a nation in need of revival. Now, I don't know how many of you joined with me in that prayer this past week, but I have been praying for God to move in my heart because I believe that's where revival starts is in my own heart. I've been praying for God to move in our church. I've been praying for God to move in our land. Now, I'm not a very mystical person. I probably qualify better as a skeptic most of the time. But over the years, I have seen God answer my prayers. I've seen him answer the prayers of the people around me. And I've learned to pray with expectation. So I'm simply reminding myself and I'm reminding you, when we go to God in prayer, let us go with a faith that believes that he hears, that he cares, and that he can So I've been praying that this past week. And then on Wednesday, there were whispers of something special taking place at Asbury College in Wilmer, Kentucky. And um, as usual, on Wednesday, they had their chapel service. But unusually, the chapel service has not ended. Um, The students have remained there, at least as of last night. They were still there together in the chapel, singing God's praises, praying together, reading Scripture, sharing personal testimony. Now, I'm not going to presume upon God as to what he's doing at Asbury. Um, It could simply be a renewal for these students that are there, or it could be something more. I really don't know. Something like this has happened at Asbury before. Uh, In the 70s, as the Jesus movement is taking off, there was a six-day revival at Asbury College, and that six-day revival accelerated the Jesus movement across our country. So all that to say... As I've been praying this past week, then hearing about that, and then leaning in to see what God might be up to, I've been encouraged. God is at work among us. I don't know what he plans to do, but all I'm doing is asking God to breathe that fresh air of revival in my heart, the fresh air of revival in our church and across our land. See, revival is something that takes place in the lives of believers. Awakenings is whenever the lost come to Christ in massive numbers. But I believe we need revival for the people of God to have this moment of renewal. So I thought we ought to just spend time before we turn to the text and ask God to move. Move in our hearts, move in our church, and move across our land. I also at least feel like I need to point out that I read the news this morning that 33,000 people have died in the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. 33,000. Now, because of where it is, how many of those people do you think knew the name of Jesus? That ought to 
That ought to motivate us to live on mission for the Lord. It's an ancient city affected by this. The ancient city that we know of as Antioch was affected by this earthquake. We ought to be praying for God's move over in that area of the world. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kneel over here and pray. And uh, let's ask God to move. I would invite you to join me right where you are. You can either, from your seat, or if you want to kneel with me, let's ask God to move today. Heavenly Father, we come together in this moment to magnify you. For you are our great and glorious God who does all things well. You have made the world and all that's in it. Father, you have designed us. You have placed within us your image. You have breathed into us the breath of life. And Father, we're overwhelmed to think that the God of all creation would be mindful of us. Lord, we are frail children of dust. That's all we are. Feeble as frail. And Father, we have walked away from you. We are sinners. We have rejected your precepts. Lord, we have failed to maintain a high view of you and of holiness and of our responsibility as the people of God in this world. Father, we are so casual about our relationship with you rather than um, motivated to live on mission with you. And so, Father, we confess that. We are sinners, personally, corporately. And God, we also thank you for the promise of your word that as we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so we receive that mercy and grace today. And Father, we come before you now, claiming your promise that says that you hear us when we pray. Your word says if two are in agreement, you will answer according to what we pray. So Father, we come in agreement right now, asking you to move in our hearts. Lord, that you would knock away the callous attitudes that are there, about you and the things of God. Um, Father, we have presumed upon you and we've assumed that you're just not going to do it again. That it's, in some ways, we've acted like we, it's up to us to send revival, to bring revival. And so, Father, what we're going to do is ask you to do it. Would you breathe that fresh, fresh air into our hearts and into our church and across our land? Father, we are mindful of the pain and the suffering in Turkey and in Syria. Father, we thank you that there are believers there. And Lord, we pray that in this moment that the hope of Christ would step in. Lord, we pray for those that are mourning, those that are grieved. And Father, I pray through all of this that we as the people of God would be motivated more to live on mission for you. Father, I pray that you would continue to help the rescue process. Lord, I pray that you would um, do what only you can in a time of great need. Now, Father, as we come now to study your word, would you speak, would you move? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. Nehemiah chapter 1, he gets the bad news, and his reaction is to be overwhelmed. Uh, His counteraction is to pray, and what we're going to find in chapter 2 is that his action is to move by faith. So, I invite you to look with me at Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, as we consider the cupbearer and the king. And it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid. 
I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be said when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs that I may be rebuilt it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it pleased the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. What we find in the text this morning is that the king grants Nehemiah's request by giving him the time, the resources, and the approval that was needed to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And what we learn from this text, and what I want to address this morning with you, is that one person can make a significant difference in this world if that person knows God, trusts him by faith, and is willing to follow him as he leads. So in the text, Nehemiah demonstrates faith to wait, Faith to speak up and faith to go. So those three expressions of faith is what we're going to consider in our text this morning. We'll begin in verses 1 through 2 in Nehemiah's faith to wait. In chapter 1, Nehemiah receives the bad news from Jerusalem, and it was in the month of Kislev, is what it says. That's uh, November, December. And so here in chapter 2, verse 1, we find ourselves in the month of Nisan. Uh, uh, Nisan, which is about four months later. This is March, April. Now, he says, we're still in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, so a year hasn't passed. It's just been four months. And for four months, Nehemiah has been praying and has been waiting on the Lord. Now, there's no reason to believe that over that period of four months of time that he lost interest um, or that his concern was uh, dampened. Based on what we know happens is that, that it only increased His concern for Jerusalem only increased. He became only more eager to see something done there in Jerusalem. So he's praying and he's waiting. And one day, which is four months later, Nehemiah is doing his normal task. He's the cupbearer to the king. And he comes out before the king. The king has his wine there. He picks up the wine. Uh, We assume he tastes it to make sure it's not laced with poison. Fortunately, it was not. But the king is kind of watching him in this moment. And... um, he notices something about him. Now, of course, the king would be very interested in how the cupbearer is acting, right? But he notices that Nehemiah is sad in his presence. And he's thinking, well, what is this all about? See, that's unusual because it's really unbecoming for somebody who's in the king's royal court to be sad. Uh, their responsibility is to make the king happy. Um, I have an assistant, uh, Tara, Tara Freeman. And uh, Tara's responsibility is make me happy all the time. And uh, if you know Tara, you know that she succeeds every single day. When I come in sad, she cheers me up, you know, and she, I need to get you a cup of coffee. And she goes and gets the coffee. She takes care of me. And uh, 
she knows her job is not to come in and make me sad, but to make me happy. Well, Nehemiah comes in, and his responsibility is to make the king happy. But here he notices he's sad, and he says, well, what's wrong with you? You're not sick? So what, 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 what's causing this, Nehemiah? Now, it's very easy for us to read the text and imagine that everybody in the Bible is a hero of the highest regard. And to think, oh, they just walked on water. They never touched the ground. They're so holy. But what I want you to notice is Nehemiah is as ordinary as you and I are. Because it says that after the king says this to him, he says, then I was very much afraid. So the guy knew fear. He's an ordinary guy. And he's afraid. Not only is he afraid, he writes it down for us. You know, he could have kept that hidden. He says, I'm just going to go and tell you, I was scared. Now, he might have been a prayer warrior. But he's also an ordinary human who dealt with fear. And what did he have to be afraid of? Well, the king noticed he was sad. And so this was a great opportunity for Nehemiah to lose his job or, worse, lose his life. Uh, Surely the king didn't want a mopey cupbearer. And so not only that, kings are notoriously moody because they can be, right? And so how's the king going to react? Now, another reason he's scared, I think, is because he knows this is the moment. Here's my opportunity. So maybe he's dealing with that fear. Same thing you've dealt with. You know you got to say something, all of a sudden the door opens, and it's like, oh, am I going to say it? I think that's what he's dealing with here. So Nehemiah had two kings in his life. He had King Artaxerxes of the Medo-Persian Empire. And uh, he had Yahweh Adonai, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And approaching these two kings couldn't have been Uh, There there couldn't be a more stark difference, right, to approach the King Artaxerxes or the King of Kings. Um, To go before King Artaxerxes would be probably a very scary experience because you never know what kind of mood the the man's going to be in, right? Not only that, we get a glimpse of what the kings of Medo and Persia were like, uh, of the Medes and the Persians. Uh, You remember a a book in the Bible uh, called Esther, and it talks about this queen, Esther, who's married to a king of the Medes and the Persians. So likely a predecessor to Artaxerxes. And um, remember, there was a big need for her to go before the king and to speak on behalf of her people. But she said to Mordecai, said, I can't go because if I go, nobody can go uninvited before the king. He kills those kinds of people. And eventually, you know, she says, well, if I die, I die. And she goes before the king. So approaching the king uninvited could lead to death. That's a very real possibility. In contrast to the throne of Artaxerxes is the throne of Yahweh Adonai, the Most High God. Nehemiah had no hesitation to go before God in prayer. Why? Because God always graciously accepts those who come before him in prayer. In fact, in the New Testament, the uh, writer in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. One can never be sure of a human's mood, but I can assure you every time you go before God, he graciously accepts you. And when you, if you can keep a vision of those two thrones in your mind, it's very easy to go before God because you think how scary it is sometimes to speak up before people, but to go before God, I can go with confidence because it's there that I receive grace and mercy. So Nehemiah has been waiting and praying for four months. Uh, We can be confident that he has given the Lord no rest. God, it's not changed. It's not changed. Every single day, probably bringing it before the Lord. But he's not rushed ahead. 
He's waited on the Lord. He's not tried to manipulate to change his circumstances. He's been waiting and praying. Let me say to you this morning, waiting on the Lord is never a waste of time. It is always an investment of time. When you wait on the Lord, you are not wasting time. You are investing your time. Because we all know what it's like um, to know what needs to be done and to be tempted to get out in front of God. Well, I can take care of this. I can change this. I mean, because you think, I can't imagine what the holdup is. I mean, Lord, don't you want me to do this? I, I need to move on ahead. But following God requires faith enough to wait on him. The psalmist writes in Psalm 46, 10, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Many of your versions say, be still and know that I am God. When Nehemiah is overwhelmed by the news of Jerusalem, I'm sure the temptation um, to strive and to do and to get ahead of God was probably very high, to manipulate the situation. But rather than put energy and effort into um, human um, solutions, he invested that time in prayer and in waiting before God. One commentator has written, prayer is where planning begins. Nehemiah is not a lazy guy. He's a very active guy. You can tell that because of the productivity that we see in his project. But he learned that planning for the work begins with praying for the work. Last week, I posed the question to you. I said, when should you pray? Do you all remember the answer? When should you pray? Before you do anything else. That's what Nehemiah did. Before he did anything else, he prayed. Is that descriptive of you? It ought to be. Very often we treat prayer as a last resort. Nehemiah demonstrated it should be our first thing that we do. When we wait, God works in us. He's shaping us to prepare us for the work ahead. When we wait on God, he shapes our circumstances so that we can be most effective for God's good purposes. So the question becomes, do you know how to pray and to wait by faith? I mean, that's a difficult thing, right? I mean, I know how to pray for my meal. I know how to pray before I go to bed. I know how to um, wait in situations where it's not important. But to pray to God and wait about things that are very important, that's hard to do. So how can I mature in that area? I would tell you the best way to do it is to train for it, to practice it, to set specific times where you are just going to go before the Lord in prayer with needs. Perhaps the remainder of these 52 days where you just go before God. I'm going to pray for God to move. To act maybe in a very specific way, something that's near and dear to your heart. Maybe a situation that you've observed around you. And you just take it to the Lord in prayer. Be specific with him. Ask him to move. And then you wait. And you see what God can do. That's the best way to learn to pray and wait. So as you wait on the Lord, you should be prepared to act when the opportunity arrives. That's what's happening here in chapter 2. Opportunity comes knocking. The king has said, what's going on? Nehemiah. So let's see Nehemiah's uh, faith to speak up here in verses 3 through 8. The king asks him, why are you sad? And Nehemiah's response is to appeal to the king's sense of what is right. Um, he doesn't try to make a political argument about what's happening in Jerusalem or in Judah, uh, but he does speak with a sense of pride and respect for his uh, ancestral land and also this sense of shame for what's happened there. He says, the, the, the place of my father's tombs has been, is, is been desecrated. It's desolate. The gates have been destroyed. 
How could I not be sad, is this question. You know, I mean, I've got to be sad. Now, Nehemiah had merely shared what God was doing in his heart, what was on his mind. He didn't try to manipulate the situation. He was just honest before the king. And the king says, well, what would you request then? And you think, what an incredible opportunity. This is essentially the king extending the scepter that uh, that Esther talks about. Well, what would you ask? Nehemiah has been waiting and praying for this moment, and now the door is opening to him. Um, In Ephesians 5, Paul speaks about taking advantage of time. He says in verses 15 and 16, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Make the most of the time that's in front of you. Take advantage of the opportunities that are presented to you. The king is asking Nehemiah to speak up. Well, what would you ask? The opportunity is right in front of him. What will he do? You know what? We are given opportunities to speak up for the sake of God's glory all the time. But very often we are tempted to not take advantage of those opportunities. Sometimes because we're not paying attention. Sometimes because we think, well, I don't know what to say. Sometimes because we haven't been praying about it. So we're not prepared for it. But the scriptures remind us we're to take advantage of opportunity to make the most of the time that's in front of us. Nehemiah had been waiting and praying for this moment for a long time, four months. Now, we're not told exactly what he prayed for. We just know he said, God, give me favor with the king. But uh, he did initially pray. You know, this is what I imagine happened. I imagine that Nehemiah probably prayed, God, would you send somebody to do something about this situation in Jerusalem? Because isn't that how it is with you? All of a sudden you see a need around you. You see a situation that needs to take place. And you say, God, can't somebody go and do something? See, I imagine Nehemiah probably like us because he's ordinary. He's scared. He probably prayed those same things until eventually he realized, hold up a second. God, here I am. Send me. Here I am. Send me. Verse 4 says, after the king asked what he wanted, Nehemiah prayed. He didn't have to pray long because he'd been praying. Probably just, Lord, help me. And with courtesy, Nehemiah humbly speaks to the king, and his request was threefold. First of all, we read in verse 5, he says, send me. Send me that I may rebuild the walls of Judah. When God calls us to something, we've got to obey. He knew God was calling him, but he served at the pleasure of the king. The scriptures teach us to respect authority, and so here he is respecting the authority. God, would you do something in his heart? Because I want to obey what you've called me to do. And here's where we see Nehemiah's leadership ability. He's a true administrator. He's an incredible planner. The king asked him, how long is it going to take? He gave him a time. He had thought this through. And not only that, he speaks about two other things that he wants. Verse 7, he says, let letters be given to me. Because he knew as I traveled to Jerusalem, it's a long journey, probably took him two months. As he's traveling to Jerusalem, he knew he was going to go through places where there was opposition. And he needed the king's authority to keep going. That's what he needed. And so he says, will you give me letters so that when I face opposition, they can say, oh, you're not, you are telling the truth. Artaxerxes says you can rebuild the wall. The second thing he asks for, he says, give me a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the woods, so that I can get the supplies I need to rebuild the gates, rebuild the wall, and build a place for me to live. Because, and that's, that's, that's asking a lot, don't you think? Not only let me go, but will you also pay for it? You know, it's kind of like your kids say to you sometimes, hey, can I go and do this? Sure. Well, can you give me the money to go? Hold up a second, you know? It's kind of how, what, what, it's, what, King, would you also do that? Well, 
We expect God to be able to control those who are surrendered to him. But what about people who are far from him? In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6, it says, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. The king's heart is like waters in the hands of God. He can turn them any way he wants to. And so the response comes back from Yahweh Adonai uh, to the king of, of the Medes and the Persians. And the, 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 he makes a way because no request is too big for Yahweh Adonai. Now, I want you to pay attention to the last line of verse 8. It should jump off the page at you. Because Nehemiah is ordinary, right? He could be saying in this moment, man, I'm pretty incredible. Look at what I did. You know, it's, I, 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 I had the right words. I said it in the right way at the right time. But he doesn't do that. In verse 8, he says at the end of it, and the king granted them to me. That was the permission to go. There was the letters, and it was also the uh, letter for the um, Asaph, the keeper of the forest. He said, granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Nehemiah gave all the glory, all the honor to God. What we learn from this episode in Nehemiah's life is that when you are living by faith, there is no limit to what God can do through you, particularly if you have faith enough to speak up. You know, the needs in our world are pretty overwhelming. In fact, it would be easy for us to say, it doesn't matter what we do. It's just too overwhelming. It will be like a drop in the bucket for all that needs to happen. But that is only true if outcomes are up to us. It would be overwhelming to try to do God's work if all the outcomes were up to us because we're so limited in what we can control. But if the good hand of God is involved, there is no telling what sort of outcomes we might see in life. So the application is walk by faith. But the critical factor of our faith is not how big our faith is, but how big the God is that we place our faith in. It's about the object of our faith. Because I can have all the faith in the world in my ability, and it'll be for naught. But even faith the size of a mustard seed in God can move a mountain. John Newton penned one of um, our favorite hymns, Amazing Grace. But he wrote other hymns as well. And I was reminded of one of those where he writes, Come my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray, therefore will not say thee nay. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Nehemiah placed his faith in the God who hears, who cares, and who can. And he had to know how unlikely it was that the king would give him permission. But he does, because that's what God can do when we put our faith in him. Now, when we come to the end of verses 9 and 10 here, we see that Nehemiah demonstrated the faith to go. And as he goes, verse 9 says, Then I came, and uh, he left the safety of uh, Susa, um, and he went and picked up this back-breaking labor of rebuilding the wall. God's moving in unexpected ways, but that does not mean that he will not face opposition. Verse 10, we're introduced to the adversaries, to the antagonists of this story, Sanballat and Tobiah. And they're about to be used by the enemy to oppose God's good work. When we have faith to go in the name of God, that does not mean that it will all be smooth sailing. We will also have to deal with 
opposition. So the question is, how do I overcome? By having faith in God. What we must remember is that this story is not about Nehemiah. The story's not about Nehemiah. I mean, we could sit here and celebrate him, but he's just a man. The story is about God's redemptive plan. It's what God was going to do in Jerusalem. It was in Jerusalem that the Son of God would be sentenced to death. And it was just outside those gates that were on fire that he would be crucified on a cross. And it was a garden tomb nearby where the Son of God, where Jesus would be buried, right outside the city of Jerusalem. And it was there that he would be resurrected so that we could have the hope of eternal life. That's what the story is about. The whole thing is about Nehemiah falling in line with God's redemptive plan. Well, what about you? Are you falling in line with God's redemptive plan? Have you said yes to Jesus in your life? Are you following him by faith? Are you living to make him known? Nehemiah had a real burden, and his burden was for God's glory and for God's people. What about you? Do you have a burden for God's glory that he would be exalted among the nations? Do you have a burden for God's people that he would be known to the furthest parts of the world? That's what we're called to do. And so I am praying that God will give each of us a burden for this world and that you will have faith to rise to the occasion, faith to wait and pray, faith to speak up, and faith to go. Heavenly Father, may it be so. As we yield our lives to you, as we hoist the sails of our life, would you breathe on us so, Father, we might go in far ways and in great ways to serve you in your kingdom's advance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to a time of invitation. Our choir is going to sing. And right where you are, you might have a decision to make. Well, you can speak to the Lord in prayer. Would you do that? So as they sing right where you are, you respond to Jesus as he speaks to your heart.